for joining me, Pete Holzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Aaron Stone, Tournament Director for the FedEx St. Jude Invitational, a World Golf Championship event on the PGA Tour held in Memphis. Golf tournaments are unique to execute because while most of the actual field of play is used year-round, the rest of the venue to support hosting the event and spectators is most often a temporary build. It is like operating a temporary city from everything to your point of vendors, infrastructure. Think about sanitation and having just your your garbage cans emptied at the end of the day to water stocked in the cooler to the grounds crew that are coming in before the sun crests the horizon that are, you know, cutting the holes for competition each day and mowing the greens. And it is truly, um, it's truly an astounding, it's a, it's an army. There are plenty of stakeholders in that army and part of Aaron's job is working closely with all to ensure that they enjoy the tournament. I once had somebody ask me, how would you put these things in order of importance? Fans, players, officials, volunteers. I mean, it's all the pieces of the puzzle, right? And I, And I had a hard time answering that question. From her time spent in professional tennis in the NHL before joining the PGA, Erin has found much of what the job requires to be consistent between these different sports. It's about creating a great experience and a positive environment and an an area that attracts fans and is enjoyable for players and that businesses want to be associated with and creating unique sponsorships and opportunities. So all, all the business of sport is really pretty universal. One aspect that sets the PGA apart, and in particular her tournament, which supports St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, is the commitment to support local charities in the markets where the tour plays. The PGA Tour is committed. They are they are a 501c6. They are a membership-based nonprofit organization where the whole mission, aside from creating playing opportunities for the professionals, is to then utilize the tour to drive charitable dollars to the communities in which we play. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for more information about many of the things we discuss and to sign up for our mailing list to get notified when we have a new episode. If you like what you hear, please take a moment, leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Aaron Stone, Tournament Director of the FedEx St. Jude Invitational. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me for Credentials Only. What is the World Golf Championship? Yeah, thanks for having me, Pete. It's a a pleasure to be on. So the World Golf Championship, um, specifically the one here in Memphis, is the World Golf Championship FedEx St. Jude Invitational. And it's a series of four international competitions on the International Golf Tour. A little bit different than your your U.S. tour stops. These are international competitions where we feature the world's best. The top 50 in the world golf rankings are invited to participate along with a champion from each of the international tours at a designated tournament and the winners um, and players of the President's Cup or the Davis Cup year. Um, nope, Davis Cup. See, I slipped into some tennis. <laughs> I'm throwing you off, getting you back President's to tennis. Cup or President's Cup, Cup or yep. Ryder Cup. You got it. <laughs> and Memphis has hosted a tournament for nearly 60 years. The change to being a WGC event is recent as of 2019. How does that make things different for that tournament in Memphis? 
Yeah, that's a really great, great question. I had a unique opportunity to start in the very last year of the FedEx St. Jude Classic, uh, which, as you said, has just a really storied past. Um, began 60 years ago with Danny Thomas, the founder of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And that tournament has had uh, just a long legacy of supporting the hospital here in Memphis. But in 2019, FedEx really um, took a step up in their commitment and, and helped us make that step to a World Golf Championship. And what that has meant to the community, to the city, to the players, to the field, everyone involved, the volunteers, the spectators, and specifically the, the fans of the, the event has meant um, a first class elevation of caliber of players, uh, elevate, elevation of execution, just an overall uh, boost to already a great community event to now really a global competition that um, everybody can have confidence that the world's best players will be here each year. And that's been the primary difference is the caliber of players. When you look at in the past, we were averaging seven or eight out of the top 50. Uh, we have now 45 or 46 out of the top 50 showing up. And overall, is the player field now smaller as well? Yeah, you very, very perceptive. Um, a full field event in golf can be 144, 156 players. And we are now playing at about 60 to 75 players, just depending on the overlap of, of who qualifies. But um, it is a much, much different field. Um, half of the participants from a player perspective, but really a concentration of the world's best. And this involved also a shift in calendar. How has that adjustment been made because i think one of the unique aspects of being a golf tournament is your venue your playing course is a living breathing thing and i would imagine in memphis the environment is different when you move to august than it was when you were playing in june yeah you, very perceptive again pete you know this is um, a tournament that's always been played in the summer previously as the fedex St. Jude classic it was in early june um, and it was a little bit of a race to make sure the course and the grass was green and the course was ready and, you know, to get to the optimal playing condition for the pros. And now uh, our date is traditionally that last week of July. And um, this next year in 2021, we'll shift a week back to accommodate the Olympic schedule. So we'll be August 2 through 8 in 2021. Um, much different from a, a perspective of the course and the grass. Um, the agronomy team really loves what it does from a player perspective, and, and it really helps make sure that we're at a, a really good place for play conditions. And from a fan participation standpoint, you know, we, we like to tell them and remind them it's Memphis. It's hot in the summer. <laughs> it's just how it is. We're in the South and, and that's just how it is. It's really no different from early June to, to late July or August. The temperatures are still going to be pretty hot and steamy, but um, luckily most of our fans are ready to embrace that. And we're pretty hardy and ready for the action. Did prize money change? Has revenue changed with the move to WGC? Um, both significantly. Um, when you when you think of a, a co-sanctioned event on the tour, which was what this tournament was as the FedEx St. Jude Classic, you're typically averaging about six, six and a half million dollars of a, a purse. Um, now as a World Golf Championship, our purse is $10.5 million, um, which is a huge elevation and, and it brings us up to one of the top 10 
paid tournaments uh, on the calendar for these guys, which really helps. A lot of things help. The Masters, of course, are, are don't miss events for these guys. The World Golf Championships are right there underneath that, not only for the prize money, but for the prestige and the ranking points. Uh, it is a no-cut event, which is another great aspect for the, the players and the fans. Previously, if you had one of your top guys and they just didn't hit that well the first two days, you know, you might not see them on Saturday or Sunday if they didn't make the cut. And now this is a no cut event. So your top guys are playing all four rounds and your fans are guaranteed to see that kind of great action with the star power behind it all four days. And that changes things for the players too, because on a regular tour event, if they don't make the cut, it's a different week for them financially, isn't it? It's a huge, it's a huge difference. <laughs> you know, when you uh, don't make the cut, particularly if that's a consistent problem for you on the tour, you know, you could, you could definitely be feeling the financial strife that might lead. If you play a no cut event, meaning you earned your right to be there in an invitation only event, you know, you have a guaranteed paycheck at the end of the day. I think our last place finisher was making just North of $50,000 last year. So you show up, you play. And even if you're the worst, your worst guy out there that week, you're still going home with $50,000. But at a regular tour event, you miss the cut, no pay? No pay, right. It's a lot of pressure on Friday <laughs> afternoon for some guys, I imagine. Jeez. So what is your role at this tournament? Yeah, so I was hired in uh, 2017 as the tournament director. Um, the longtime tournament director here for the last uh, probably dozen years, uh, Daryl Smith, was promoted to executive director. And um, I came in under him to join that leadership team and and help run the event, mainly handling the commercial side of the business and with a focus on sales and marketing. And I was going to ask the difference between that executive director and tournament director. So if you're on that commercial side, what falls to him in that executive role? Well, he'll have oversight of kind of the entire tournament operations and, and, and responsibility for the business unit. Um, but we, you know, like to complement each other's skills. He's got a lot of uh, experience with golf, particularly he's been in golf his entire career. So he certainly knows the ins and outs of the greens and the competition and particular to this Memphis community. He's uh, much more entrenched being a local himself and growing up born and raised here. So he's got a lot more ties to the community and the uh, volunteer base. You know, I've got experience on the business side, selling large, large uh, tournament deals and sponsorships and hospitality. So um, leading the sales team is my area of focus and making sure that we meet those revenue numbers to ensure that we've got the right funds to put on a world-class event. We talked about having to get the course ready, but from the outside, it seems like putting on a golf tournament is a pretty huge lift operationally because it's not like you have an existing stadium seating bowl and a manifest of tickets for it. You have to create everything every year. Can you walk through the different things that you need to do to prepare the golf course to host a championship tournament? Wow. Yeah, it's a big question. And, and for sure, it's a tall order. Uh, but it also gives us a, a good amount of flexibility. And I think that um, particularly right now, as we're all, you know, in the hopefully the tail end of this pandemic, it's been probably one of the most beneficial things to the sport. You know, we are essentially, we have a campus of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of green acres out here where it can be as flexible as, as we imagine it to be, or as, as lucrative as, as we imagine it to be. So 
Um, that flexibility has really been key. But, you know, when you're out here surveying the, the course from our perspective, from the business side, not from the, the player and the competition and the agronomy side, but from the business side of it, you know, we're looking at what what is most appealing to fans and particularly businesses, because this is a huge business entertaining sport. You know, what is the, where is the drama on the course? Where is that really exciting par three that you can, you know, really watch these guys. We have an, we have an Island hole on our 11th par three here in Memphis. You know, where is the drama? Where can a player make or break that score for themselves? You know, the whole, the 16th hole here in Memphis is a, is a long par five. And, you know, you see some really daring shots that are taken. So that creates some drama. And then of course your finishing holes are always attractive from a hospitality standpoint. So 17 and 18, you know, thinking about where do fans want to be? Where is the drama unfolding? And then how do we lay out opportunities to cater to that? You know, as we look at the course, where can we build suites? Where can we build a a public fan area? Where's a great spot for a sponsorable, you know, kid zone or family area or fan zone? You know, where do the title sponsor Cabana sit? And relative to that, what business suites can we have in close proximity? So you're, you're thinking about all those things as you survey the course and um, you really decide where to build things and where the future is for your tournament as well. And so in terms of building, you know, I imagine a lot of these are tents. Um, you're not necessarily on even terrain, though. And so you have to build into a hillside and, and level it out. And, you know, I, I imagine there's a lot of work that goes into that. If your event this year, you said, is starting August 2nd, when does all that on-course construction begin? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I've always had an appreciation um, for for companies that can build and erect stadiums from the ground up and watching them do it inside a, you know, five court tennis facility for the Memphis open was one thing. And then now I'm seeing them do it to your point across hilly terrain and over the jutting out over water and cases and, you know, just the different things they can do with some ingenuity. Um, The companies that build it, there are several of them. We use Schaefer sports here for ours, but um, when they build those structures, I mean, they're they're leveling out the ground and creating platforms to to erect these tents. And I mean, these aren't these aren't high school pop up uh, tailgate tents. You know, these are elaborate multi story structures with hard walls and and steel facade barriers and barricades to build them up. And it's it's really quite impressive. We could start um, really as early as the course becomes available without hindering play, because you're also balancing. You're almost always on a, on a club where there's members and players and people who want to play the game as long as they can. Uh, and the tournament doesn't want to interfere with that. So you're, you're also balancing that act. But we build about three months early um, to answer your question. And I know, you know, when I was assigned to the, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, I mean, they're building six months to eight months or nine months early because they had a three-story structure fully wrapping around the 16th hole. So it really just depends on the out, you know, the footprint uh, and the outlook of your tournament, but it's a pretty significant undertaking. Roughly how many structures get constructed on your venue? Here in Memphis uh, for the WGC FedEx St. Jude Invitational, we're, we're erecting about probably about, 20 structures, um, everything from fan zones and areas. When we 
converted to a WGC, we created a very large area we call the hub as a little nod to FedEx having their, of course, global hub in Memphis. And uh, the hub was a place people could go for air conditioning and get a break and a great bar and a great cocktail. And there was stuff for the kids to do. Um, that, you know, is a, a new structure that was larger and had a bigger footprint for building. Um, but then suites across four or five different holes. Um, you've got areas that fulfill sponsor commitments like the Ultra Club and we had previously the Grey Goose Lounge. So there's there's quite a few structures built, not to mention volunteers and information booths and you know areas that you need just from an operational standpoint. And I think it's important to acknowledge in this conversation too that you know, the consumer experience at a golf tournament is significantly different than someone going to a football or basketball game where you have your assigned seat, you're going to go, you're going to sit for two to three hours, and then you're going to leave. Your time spent on venue is probably longer than that. The nomadic piece of it where people probably don't go to one spot and stay there all day, they're probably moving around a bit more. How much does that have to factor into deciding to put the hub out there or where to put the food and drink and course entrances and everything. So in, in golf, you know, you make a great point. You really want fans to traverse the course and, and spread widely across the, the area. And really we get asked all the time, what would a, a sellout crowd be or what would capacity look like from a, an attendance standpoint? And the answer is, is that you really don't have a defined number because as long as people spread out and you're doing your job as a tournament organizer to entice them to other areas of the course and rather than getting bottlenecked on the final three holes, you know, that's what we're all striving for. So when we make our plan for the year, where do we put concession stands and where's the fan zone and where are the different suite areas and where's the gathering places for food and drink and in our case, barbecue, you know, we're trying to put those in areas of the course that are less traveled so that you can entice the fans to other areas. The good news is as your player and your field, your player field increases and improves, people naturally will want to follow them. And that will create a real natural migration to people traveling the course. And we saw that happen starting in 2019, where all of a sudden every group has a big name in it and your feature groups are you know, all across the day, all across the tea times and people are, are taking the time to walk and follow Brooks or Rory or Justin, or you know, the, there's a no number of players they wanna see and that helps travel the course as well. An added layer to this, as you're setting up for this nomadic lifestyle of your fans, is the practical back-of-house piece of it. You can't just throw a tent anywhere because you might need plumbing for the restrooms or electric for the air conditioning. That's probably very important. How hard is it to just get all of those operational pieces lined up? And, and how yeah. long is that process? We talked about the build-out starting a few months out, but the planning has to be twice that long, I would imagine. I have to say, I really have nothing but the highest level of respect for all the operational crews across this whole industry, because not a, not any two golf courses are the same. No two golf courses are the same. Some of us have hardline power built into different hubs across the course to access. And certainly you might invest in those things if you know you're at the same facility over the course of 
of your years of being there, but some are playing at public parks and they're not allowed to drive stakes into the ground to secure their tents. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, ways that you can to do this and accomplish it, but it, it's certainly no small task. And the operational crews really do a great job in all kinds of weather, in all kinds of heat, through all kinds of rain. It, it's truly a remarkable endeavor. And that's another facet is you're an outdoor sport. And I would think that, especially now with the new dates, you've seen a thunderstorm or two roll through. So you also have to think about that public safety. If you've got a bunch of people out on a golf course, that doesn't seem like the place you want to be when there's lightning and thunder rolling in. How do you guys plan those contingencies? Yeah, luckily, we uh, the PGA Tour does take a professional meteorologist out to each tournament. So we have somebody on our staff that ensures we are monitoring the weather specifically if there is some weather systems coming through. You know, safety is the number one priority, of course, for all of our guests and fans and players. So uh, monitoring the weather very closely is is important. Um, certainly being versatile and being able to play in a light drizzle when there's no lightning or thunder in the mix, but, uh, you know, fans become pretty hardy and the players become pretty hardy. And, uh, you know, here in Memphis, it, it could drizzle and it'd still be pretty darn warm. There's certainly climates where you're playing and, and you've got cold weather coming in with drizzle and that makes for an interesting tournament as well. It, it makes me long for my climate controlled interior sport days. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> The players get around, they play 20, 30 tournaments a year. What did you do to make your event stand out to the players and make that week special for them? You know, that's, a, that's another great question. The co-sanctioned world, when you are a PJ Tour event, there's a lot more done to entice the players because you really are competing to get on those guys' schedules and their calendars and, and make them want to choose your tournament. In, in our case now as a world golf championship, luckily a lot of that is done for us in the elevation of the tournament. Now that we are a world golf championship, a, a no cut event, a guaranteed paycheck that, you know, speaks very strongly to the guys and the prestige of winning a world golf championship is for a lot of them on a, on a bucket list wish for their careers. But what we do with St. Jude is really key here in Memphis as well. I think we, Oh, countless times Memphis has won an integration award for the charity integration. And we've really had a presence with St. Jude, with the patients, with the leadership at the hospital, um, but learning about what the hospital does, involving the players in it, letting them interact with the patients, having these special one-on-one -on -one moments really makes our tournament stand out uh, for them on the schedule. And that's for a lot of them, they know this is the, you know, the FedEx St. Jude. And that's, that's really what it comes down to that our namesake charity is, is in the name. It's integral to how we operate. It's integral to the experience we want the players to have and what we want the fans to see. And it's really integral to the whole mission and everything behind what we're doing this for is, is to benefit the hospital. You have two huge partners that are really well-known within Memphis, but known for being in Memphis globally in FedEx and St. Jude's, which is a, a unique opportunity. You don't always have a title sponsor that's necessarily that embedded in your marketplace. What is the community involvement like? And what is the economic impact that you guys provide to the Memphis area? Yeah, those are great questions. We are very fortunate to have FedEx 
headquartered globally here in Memphis, Tennessee, founded here, you know, original Memphis company. And now, of course, they're a, a global, one of the top companies in the world, but um, they are committed to golf. They're committed to sports marketing, of course, but specifically to golf. And they see a return on the investment for being involved in their Obviously, they took it to another level with the FedEx Cup and what they do with the season-long race, not just their title sponsorship here in Memphis, but um, their involvement in their hometown is significant. And we are very fortunate to have that kind of hands-on partnership where we can really sit at the table every week and, and strategize and talk through improvements and how to benefit all those involved and really how to benefit St. Jude. And you mentioned our two partnerships they are also a, a powerful partner and they have one of the strongest name recognitions of any charity worldwide. And boy, when Thanksgiving comes around in the fall, there isn't a store or retail outlet anywhere across the U.S. that isn't trying to benefit the hospital and help the kids of St. Jude. And we are very lucky to have kind of their marketing genius behind that and how we can really strategize to make a bigger impact for the hospital and ultimately for the patients because they're a really unique story. No patient, no family ever receives a bill for treatment at St. Jude and they take the worst of the worst cancer patients and what some doctors would consider untreatable cases. You know, they, they're committed to taking those patients on. And so it's a very special place. And it seems very integrated, as you mentioned, with the players getting involved with that. How else are the players involved in the community and with sponsors throughout the course of the week? You know, the, the player involvement here in Memphis has always been really astounding. And we're fortunate they've had visits to the hospital. They've had visits to the hub. It's really been a, a great opportunity for them to get integrated into the community in a big way. But specifically here, you know, they've many of the players have taken tours of the hospital. We've done the golf around, which is a great little putt-putt event on the campus with patients who maybe couldn't leave the facility. So that's been, um, you know, pretty meaningful. And then we've brought patients out here. They've done different programs. We've had an art party in the FedEx title cabana. They donate the space in their title suite to the patients who come out from the hospital who get to do an art party with the players' wives. Um, the players themselves get to interact with the patients on Sunday. They're the honorary pin flag holders. And there's nothing more touching than seeing, you know, a superstar like Brooks Kepka coming off that 18 hole and his pin is being held by a current St. Jude patient who just looks at him with those hero eyes and, you know, that's, and, Conversely, Brooks is looking at him with those hero eyes. And it's, it's those kind of special moments that really make this tournament distinct. And this isn't unique to you guys. I mean, you guys do a great job in that embeddedness that you have with St. Jude is unique. But in terms of the PGA Tour in general and the emphasis on charity from the tour and all of its tournaments, I think is, is very commonplace. What is it that drives that from the PGA and makes it successful? You know, we're very fortunate that the company, of course, that, that we work for here in Memphis, the PGA Tour is committed. They are, they are a 501c6 
They are a membership-based nonprofit organization where the whole mission, aside from creating playing opportunities for the professionals, is to then utilize the tour to drive charitable dollars to the communities in which we play. And when you think about that impact, you know, here in Memphis, it's seen and felt with what we do for St. Jude, but all across the cities all across the U.S. that we're playing in and globally, you know, we're driving bottom line dollars back into the community for those charities. And that is astounding to not just say we're going to do it once a quarter, once every five years or once on a whim or when we have a flagship year, but that we're doing it in and out every year. And that that is the mission. The mission is a viable tournament so that we can give back to charity and and give back to the communities in which we play. That's what's astounding. And the giving is beyond just the charity aspect though, because you're driving a lot of business with the people traveling in and the hotel nights, the rental cars, airport, foot traffic, all of that. What is the economic impact like in Memphis? Yeah, you you make a great point. You know, we um, haven't had a formal study, but we do have our latest estimates around the $50 million of economic impact. Um, we feel very confident. And in fact, we have the numbers and metrics. We partnered this last few years. Memphis Tourism, our local CVB, has been a very big partner of ours in helping measure, you know, the footprint of people coming in from out of the area. How many regional tickets are we selling? And we can, of course, track all those analytics. You can, you know, you look up your zip codes from Ticketmaster purchases and things like that. So we know that we are bringing people in to stay overnight, to drive the local economy, to, to spend money in restaurants, to fill the gas at their local gas station. And that is all part of the equation. When you have a, a world-class event in a community and you're attracting out-of-town visitors, you're magnifying that impact. Really, it's it's quite a, a an outreach into what you can do for the community with those increased dollars flowing through your area. There's a lot going on that we've talked about. So how big is your team that's working to, to put this tournament on? Yeah, we are lucky here in Memphis that uh, we are part of the championship management division, uh, which is part of the PGA Tour. So all of us in Memphis, we have a team of, of seven on the ground, and we are the, the local staff here in Memphis, but we are employees of the PGA Tour. And of course, the PGA Tour has over a thousand employees um, nationwide and, and overseas as well. So we have a, a very strong um, support network back at headquarters in, in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. And uh, we're lucky to have uh, that, that support to lean on at headquarters. Most, uh, most golf tournaments you'll see will operate with a staff from, from six to, to 15 and, and utilize some great contractors as some great outside resources. But um, we're fortunate here. We have seven on the ground and then a very strong staff back at headquarters. And what are the aspects of the business that the tour staff is helping you with? Yeah, the, the, the business functionality from, you know, everything from an HR perspective to a finance and accounting perspective, you know, all of your payables and receivables, everything from a communications, a marketing standpoint, creative, we're having campaigns designed and collateral designed, um, everything from media placement to um, communications and, and a network and working on earned media as well. You know, it's a really, it's a strong support group with pretty much all the business functions that most events need to really thrive. 
seven people on the team to support from the PGA, but there's another large group that probably has a big role in your tournament. What do volunteers mean to the FedEx oh, St. Jude invitation? Oh boy, the volunteers here, what, I mean, this is probably one of the strongest volunteer programs, if not the strongest volunteer program on the tour. It's a pretty bold statement to make, but uh, when I came in three years ago, I was, uh, I was floored at how strong the volunteer base is here in Memphis. So much how, so- How many that, people are we talking about? Oh, I think it was 3,500 volunteers. Okay. And I mean, they're acknowledging milestones with, we, we acknowledge them with pins and accomplishments and, and different things. I mean, there are people with 60 year pins who have been part of this thing from the very beginning. I mean, it is just amazing to see the longevity and, and a legacy that some of these volunteers are creating their grandfather volunteered and then the mom or dad volunteered. And then the, now the child is volunteering. I mean, it's a really special thing to see how that's affected the community. That longevity certainly makes them have a great affinity for the tournament, but what else do you think makes your volunteer core the best? Well, it's simply because the the Memphis core is the best. <laughs> no, they they really are committed. But I think what makes it special here in Memphis and and all the volunteers that support the tournaments all across the U.S. are are committed, dedicated, and very selfless people to give up so much time. Uh, but here in Memphis, they do it for the hospital and and they do it for the kids. And when it comes down to it, you know it it's important that we have a tournament and it's great that it's now a world golf championship, but to them, that doesn't make one bit of difference. What makes a difference is the patient stories and knowing that the time that they're giving is ultimately benefiting those kids and those families who need it the most. And they actually have a number of programs, but one particularly, they can pledge their hours on the course. I mean, and some of these guys are, and gals are working countless hours and they can pledge their hours and, and do peer-to-peer -peer fundraising to raise money themselves individually for the hospital. And to date, it's surpassed over a million dollars that the volunteers themselves have raised for the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. So when you Holy look cow. at volunteers not only giving their time, but being willing to outreach to their friends and their networks to, to pledge those dollars, I mean, that takes it to a whole nother level. 3,500 is a lot of people, but then you've got to multiply that probably because you're adding in all the different vendors and contractors and broadcast personnel. In the end, roughly, how many people are getting credentialed to come out and make sure that this tournament runs? Oh my gosh, it's a huge number. We, you know, we, we've attempted to count to your point, you know, how many people are we giving out? How many credentials are we giving out? How many spectators are on site? It's a it's a floating number and it's a moving target. Um, and, and, you know, we actually don't necessarily disclose firm figures at the tour as a policy. But I'll tell you that the number of people is astounding that it takes. And it is like operating a temporary city from everything to your point of vendors, infrastructure. Think about sanitation and having just your, your garbage cans emptied at the end of the day to water stocked in the cooler to the ground crew that are coming in before the sun crests the horizon that are, you know, cutting the holes for competition each day and mowing the greens. And it is truly, um, it's truly an astounding, it's a, it's an army. I'd like to think it's a, <laughs> it's a small army it takes to come, come up with a successful week. And, and what are the other unique things that golf tournaments 
have to tackle is that you're not a stadium built out in an area where there's ample parking around it. What's your parking situation like? And what do you have to do to accommodate all the spectators and even these volunteers and everybody else who needs to get into the, the golf course? Yeah, you is spoken like someone who knows that parking can be always be make or break an event. First impression, it can be such an instrumental piece of the puzzle. Um, we are very fortunate here in Memphis that we have a, a, a number of acres that is a, immediately adjacent to our property. Many, many years ago, St. Jude had the foresight to purchase this land um, when we started running, again, the tournament that, that had Danny Thomas as the namesake. And that, that land is served for a, a number of parking purposes for us. And it, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of cars. So that's kind of our core parking and it's on site, which is very rare to your point for any tournament, golf, tennis, anything. But uh, we supplement that parking with lots around town, different office complexes, um, churches, places where we can secure the spaces that aren't otherwise being used on the weekend or evenings or uh, other opportunities we might have. It's a lot of logistics involved with putting on one of these events. Uh, what is the PGA Tours Executive Director Initiative? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's actually been renamed, I think, in the last year. They're calling it the Tournament Leadership Initiative. And uh, it's a program I was hired into originally when um, the PGA Tour hired me in, in 2017. Um, the initiative basically is to identify future talent. And as you think about not just the tournaments that the PGA Tour owns and operates, but all of the co-sanctioned tournaments across the, the United States and abroad, you know, they wanted to, to build the bench and to say, hey, we, we need to identify people with the right skill set and the right thinking to, you know, help train them and, and get them more acclimated to the business of golf and our sport. And how do we build this pool of candidates who, who have the attributes that we consider uh, the leadership qualities of, of people qualified to run these tournaments? So um, I was fortunate to get hired into the program. They had a couple, they have a couple different tracks you're, you know, established in your career and, and looking for pretty quick placement, or you could be in the program for multiple years because you're maybe young and you, you need a, a, a lot more work experience and practical experience. But um, the program is a great way to get abreast of the industry, to learn the business of golf and to really hone your skills on how you can put your talents, your career uh, accolades to work in a greater cause to benefit these charities and these communities. So I would encourage people to check out the leadership tournament leadership initiative with the PJ tour, a great program. And when you're in that program, are you working specifically with the tournament in Memphis? Or are you getting a little bit of a sample of a few of the other tournaments? So from my experience in the program, I was in the program for about six to eight months. Um, and my, my experience particularly was at on-site. We did three, um, three stints of uh, different on-site opportunities. I was first out at the Waste Management Phoenix Open. We like to joke that they wanted me to drink from a fire hose initially and sent me to the largest, <laughs> largest spectator tournament in the world. It was, it was something else, the Super Bowl of, of golf. 
So I was in Phoenix, Scottsdale, particularly for about three months. And then I went to the World Golf Championship Dell Technologies match play in Austin, Austin, Texas for a few months. And then um, back to headquarters to Ponte Vedra for both headquarter training and a look at the Players Championship, which is, of course, a huge event. Um, our namesake tournament, our, our really our marquee tournament owned by the PJ Tour um, down there played in, in the Jacksonville area. So that all comprised my kind of my experience with the tournament leadership initiative before then getting hired to be on the Memphis team specifically. You had been in Memphis previously. You mentioned the Memphis Open, which was an ATP tour stop. Tennis and golf kind of get lumped together sometimes because it's a traveling tour, a different stop every week, and individual athletes out there. How would you compare and contrast that pro game between tennis and golf? So, you know, great question. Tennis and golf are both uh, very similar, similar, very complementary sports to one another being, of course, the tournament, you know, short term, um, short term event, not a long term season. But even prior to that, when I was with the Detroit Red Wings, the NHL franchise, there's similarities to that business as well. And a lot of people would find that amusing to say, oh, you went from hockey to tennis and now you're in golf. But the business of sport is, is very similar and a lot of universal principles apply specifically when you're working on the business side of it. It's about creating a great experience and a positive environment and an, an area that attracts fans and is enjoyable for players and that businesses want to be associated with and creating unique sponsorships and opportunities. So all, all the business of sport is really pretty universal, but um, specifically, I can definitely appreciate the shorter season of golf and tennis compared to hockey or yeah. uh, basketball or even baseball out there. So from that perspective, I love that. And I would think that cuts both ways a little bit because you do have basically a seven to 10 day window where you need to operate as opposed to, you know, six months. But at the same time, I would think that makes it a little bit harder to pivot midstream because you've kind of, you got to go all in with here's what our plan is this year. Is there a little bit of both of those competing interests there? You know, we, we usually say that we've got one chance to make it right. You know, we don't have a whole season to pivot and to adjust. So we've got one shot to do it right. And we need to get it right the first time because we, you know, there is no, no time to change at that point. So you're right. The pressure is definitely a little higher, a little bit more intense. Um, but, you know, lucky for us, it's, it's less about team performance and are you tracking toward a playoff and, you know, who's injured right now or who's not because, you're all there to celebrate these these guys playing the course and these championship players. And it's less about, you know, how your team is performing that year and are you tracking toward, you know, a, a playoff season. So from that perspective, it's helpful as well. Your title currently is tournament director, and that was your title with the Memphis Open. My impression, though, is that on the tennis event side, in that role, you get a little bit more involved in the day-to-day -day actual competition. Is that accurate? And if so, how? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, there's definitely so many differences, of course, as well as similarities between tennis and golf. Um, but in tennis, 
you know, and, and in golf from that perspective, luckily the organizations run the tournament. So, you know, we don't get involved in the competition, so to speak, in either sport, tennis or golf, you know, there, there's experts and, you know, the whole division to do that. Um, and in both sports, you're really focused more on the experience, but I think, to your point in, in tennis, we're perhaps a little bit more hands-on with the competition and with the officials. Um, and it could just be the size and scope of the organizations behind them. Um, I think there's a little bit more manpower in, in golf. And so uh, with more bodies comes more hands and more expertise. And so people can be a little bit more of a, a specialist. As we're in tennis, you had to be a little bit more of a jack of all trades. Uh, and that I, I do think that there is some truth to that. It's been a theme throughout this of doing things unique and standing out a little bit. What was your trophy at the Memphis Open? <laughs> Something I was very proud of, actually. <laughs> we, uh, we actually had a great great partnership with Gibson Guitars and and most people who know the Memphis history know we are a music town and we have just a soul of blues and soul and and jazz and just the music here is just part of who we are so when we came in that first year I think 2015 was my first tournament uh, and we really had a very special custom-made Gibson guitar, a mother of pearl case with a inlaid Memphis Open presented by Service Master. Uh, their logo was inlaid into that guitar. And boy, it was it was pretty cool to hand that off to the champion on the court. They, you know, you could see their eyes bug out a little bit, especially if they're music fans, you know, or into playing themselves. It was a pretty cool trophy. What was your role with the Red Wings when you were working in Detroit? So I actually went um, to the team. I joined the organization in 2009 in um, what was a pretty, pretty bad economic downturn in our nation, but specifically hit Detroit really hard. I don't know how many people remember those days, but um, it was pretty dire. And we, the automotive, the big three was having some, some really tough times, but my organization, they basically said, we need to get more aggressive on revenues and how we think about our business and how we think about, you know, our off season days. So my whole job at the Red Wings was to take our facilities, um, the arena at the time, Joe Lewis arena, they now play in little Caesars arena, but Joe Lewis Arena, and we owned the Fox Theater in Detroit. We owned uh, Hockey Town Cafe. And we also had a, an operating agreement with another major theater in, in Detroit. And my job was to book events and to come up with creative ideas and how do we fill what would otherwise be a dark day? Why, why can we turn the lights on? What can we do to bring business in the door to make money for the company outside of our core business unit, outside of games and, and season tickets? And it was kind of a, a great way to flex your creative side of your brain and say, okay, well, let's think differently. Let's get out of the box. Let's stop, you know, resting on our laurels and let's, let's get aggressive and let's get creative. And um, it was a really fun fun job, fun opportunity. We started with virtually nothing to, we were running a $5 million annual business in events. And we just didn't even know that was private events, not concerts, not, you know, things that are ticketed, but private events. And, and it was really fun to, to spend that time there with them. 
stayed all the way through the groundbreaking of the new arena just in time to leave before the door is open. <laughs> Throughout your career, what have you done to kind of feed that creative muscle? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's such a, I think it's such an understated part. You know, sometimes we can find ourselves just getting stuck in the same old rinse and repeat what we did last year. Let's do what we did last year. How did we do it last year? And it, it and it's a, it's a trap. I think a lot of us fall into. Um, and the the hard part is to stop and take stock and say, okay, not just improve it, but maybe reinvent it. You know, is it time to, is it time to reinvent the wheel and and say, hey, if it's not working. Let's try something new. And there's always risks involved. Um, and, you know, great example. How do I keep up? We tried to recreate a, a customer space here at the, the Memphis Golf Tournament at the WGC FedEx St. Jude Invitational. And, and, and we bombed. It, it didn't sell well. <laughs> we, you know, we, we learned a really hard lesson. And, and we took some, you know, very hard um uh, feedback from customers and clients. And uh, thankfully, we were able to pivot. And now in 2021, we're kind of reverting back to what was before we tried to make a change. And that's part of the game. That's part of the industry. You're going to, you're going to throw some things out there and it's not always going to work. And you just got to, you got to do your best to grab a hold of what's working and run with it and to pivot off what didn't work and not uh, lose sight of the, the end the end goals. Do you find yourself when you go to a game or you watch something on TV, paying more attention to what's happening around the competition than the actual competition itself? <laughs> Always. I, don't, I cannot, my, my husband hates going with me to a sporting event because I'm never paying attention to the field or the court or the whatever it is. I'm always like, how come I don't have that sponsor? Well, what about that company? Well, what about that one? Well, look what they did over there. Oh, I like this concession stand. Oh, I love that fan area. And it's, it's, it is a little bit of a, you know, it's a, a, a side effect of the job, but that's always the case. How do you retain that? I mean, do you have a notebook with you? Or are you emailing yourself? What's your process to remember that when you get back to the office the next morning? Yeah, normally, especially nowadays, we, you know, we take pictures of everything and you send them around to your team and you get the creative juices flowing that way. You know, I think, thank heavens for text messages and smartphones, but um, you know, we have a, we have a pretty good process of just sitting down as a team once a week and always just having an open door dialogue to, to how you can do things better. But um, you know, it's, it's pretty, there's so many people doing so many great things across the sport industry. And, and you'll see a lot of them being shared out in best practices and emails and industry publications and keeping abreast of those and figuring out what people are doing and what, how it might apply to you. You mentioned there being such a common thread between sports and your path. You <laughs> reference going hockey to tennis to golf isn't necessarily what one might anticipate, but even before that uh, you were in tennis, but you also did uh, a, a race director for a run and walk and you're involved with the AAU junior Olympics. Yeah. What have you seen as you've grown in, in the industry that really does tie all these sports events together and helped you make these steps in your career? You know, it's, and you're right. I've had a lot of really different experiences and I, I value that from, from a diverse background of thought, certainly, and how you can apply it across different sports. But um, you know, when you go through, I, I once had somebody ask me, what, how would you put these things in order of importance, fans, players, 
officials, volunteers. I mean, it's all the pieces of the puzzle, right? And I and I had a, a hard time answering that question because, you know, do you put the cart before the horse? But there are common themes across all of them, right? You can't have an exciting event without talented players, whether it's, you know, hockey players or golfers or tennis stars, that's part of the puzzle. You usually need a great core volunteer base to execute it because, you know, let's face it, we can't afford to have all those positions that you need to run a great event as, as paid staff. Um, you obviously need a lot of fans there. If you don't have fans there, then, then you don't have anything exciting to entice businesses. And if you don't have business sponsorship, then you don't have the bottom line to make it all happen year over year over year. So it's, it's all the pieces of a puzzle. And whether it was, whether it was a 10 K race that I, I did very early in my career, you know, reinventing the sponsorship model and trying to think, how do we entice more businesses? Well, that came with enticing more runners because you need eyeballs and impressions to get the businesses attracted um, to, you know, working a community, a USTA pro circuit event that was on the ITF circuit. It was a small $100,000 women's challenger in Midland. You know, all of that was like a, a training ground for the, the major leagues. It was sponsorship and media and fans and box seat holders and then you just magnified it to a professional level. So all of those things definitely apply. And, you know, I always tell students if I'm talking to a class or a sports management class, I, I encourage them, don't just think big. You can start out in community events and you can start out in small, you know, minor league sports and, and different avenues to gain experience. That's probably where you're going to be able to get your hands in a lot of different areas. And then as you scale it up, it, you tend to you tend to have to be a specialist, but sometimes starting small is the best way to go. That was my next question: Is what would your advice be to someone who wants to get into the sports space and certainly getting that experience is a really smart way to do it? But how can they maximize that experience? Yeah, that's a that's a very great question. I really do encourage them to to start small. I think every every student in a sports management program out there, which there are a lot now, <laughs> almost every university has one. You know, everybody thinks that they're going to be in the front office at a major league sport and their favorite team and you know, first of all, being a fan does not help you. So <laughs> I always tell them, you know, check the fan at the door. That's not going to help you. In fact, in, in some cases, that's going to almost be a detriment to your interview or your application. But, you know, not necessarily thinking that the, the whole industry has to revolve around the major league sports. I mean, there are so many opportunities across the sports business and the recreation business that people don't think about. And it's, again, it's those small opportunities, I think, that really help create a well-rounded sports business professional. And it helps you when you're young or you're new in this industry. It helps you really figure out what you're good at. What do you have a knack for? Where's your passion? You know, what gets you fired up every day? What's the best part of the year on your cycle of, of whatever that event or that sport or that business is? What do you like the most? And then figure out where your passion is and, and chase that avenue. That's where you want to be a specialist. I close every episode of Credentials Only with the same half dozen questions. I call it the set pieces. Uh, Start with what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I do follow, like most people in our industry, Sports Business Journal. SBJ has been a mainstay in our community, our business community for a long time, and they continue to innovate and stay ahead of the trends um, across all sports. So SBJ has been great, Sports Business Journal. Um, and recently, I just subscribed to the podcast Rise Up, uh, and it's a great new kind of focus as we work on more diversity and equity and inclusion across our industry. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to sit on a committee that's across collaboration and golf of, of the PGA Tour, the PGA of America, the LPGA, our endemic partners, our industry partners, and we're all focused on these DEI subjects and how we can be better and do better. Um, so, so subscribing to Rise Up has really uh, been kind of eye-opening in how athletes are using their platforms to bring about change and to have a voice because we're lucky to work in sports. We're lucky to play sports. We're lucky to have this as a, a livelihood, whether it's a, a business for us or as a passion or we're the participant. You know, how do we use that that leverage and that power to bring about change? And um, that's been a really positive one. And I'm, I'm learning a lot on that subject. Who are your most valuable follows, the social media posts you do not want to miss? Oh, good question. Oh, Scratch Golf is a lot of fun. If you uh, watch Scratch, they have some great uh, posts and they were really hopefully helping us bridge into a new consumer as we try to bring the game a little more forward, a little bit more fun, trying to attract new audiences. So um, I definitely like Scratch. You know, no, no laying up. It, it can be a little controversial at times, but um, I have a lot of fun with that one. Um, I also subscribe to some fun ones in Memphis that I think help me stay a little bit abreast with the community. Um, walking in Memphis in high heels is kind of a funny one, just a, a little tongue in cheek uh, from a female perspective. There's uh, obviously there's the ones affiliated with the city itself. Choose 901, a lot of what's going on around that town and the community. So those are some good examples. I do have to take this moment now that we're on Memphis to throw in an extra set piece here. <laughs> What's the go-to barbecue you play for you in Memphis? Oh, this is a fightable question in Memphis. I mean, this <laughs> yes, can, it is. Seriously, there could be some throwdowns <laughs> over this question. Uh, I will say Memphis style barbecue trumps all other styles of barbecue. And I wouldn't have known that until living here, but the slow dry rub Memphis style cooked over those smokers uh, for hours and hours and hours. That is, that is some good stuff. And uh, I'm a fan. I, I have a lot of great barbecue joints, but I um, really like central barbecue. We all love rendezvous from its, you know, iconic place in, in a back alley of downtown Memphis um, you know, really just uh, some really, really good barbecue. Hog Wild is owned locally by an entrepreneur here. There's no shortage of good barbecue. What well, are a couple? Get me any hate letters. <laughs> well, you said it's a fightable thing there. So you, you somebody, True. some Corky's fan is certainly it's, sending you an email. It's a disclaimer. <laughs> it was a disclaimer. What are a couple books that you'd recommend that others read? Doesn't have to be limited to sports. You know, the very first book, and this is an oldie, but the very first book my, my first career mentor um, told me to read was is called Now Discover, Discover Your Strengths. 
and it's, I mean, it is old. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm probably dating myself back in my career. This is like 15 years ago or more. That book, I think it's much like the personality or the, you know, where you stand in the matrix of skill sets. I think it was really eye-opening for me to think about what I'm passionate about and my skills and how that parlays into a career track. So I always recommend that um, for people coming out of school, specifically if they really don't know their path yet or which way they want to go. Um, there is a lot of, of great leadership books out there. Uh, gosh, I mean, you got classics like Good to Great. I'm looking at my bookshelf as we talk <laughs> right now. You know, Ice to the Eskimos, you know, Gung Ho. I mean, there's just, there's, there's all sorts of great opportunities um, but this is probably not what you want to hear. I read a lot for pleasure and enjoyment. So I'm reading a lot of, I'm just reading a lot of fiction just for a, a quick, you know, turn, turn off the real world and escape in a novel. So uh, I probably blow through a book a week in that perspective. It's great to have that balance though, because it can get to be overwhelming <laughs> if you're just constantly in the workspace. So yeah. totally understand that. And and maybe that is going to be your answer to this next question. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? Yeah, actually, that is a great point. If I think of what, you know, what keeps me fired up on a, you know, on a, a daily basis and, and keeps you going. I, time away to just escape into a novel. Definitely. Um, I've always been a big reader. I think, and whether the novel is, enlightening or enriching or educational or not, it still is improving vocabulary and bringing about world knowledge. And I, I do think the benefits of reading as a whole, you know, outweigh anything else, but um, just time to unwind, um, you know, just had a little baby girl, although she's now 10 months old, so she's not so little anymore, but just some time to get on the floor and play with Mackenzie is a, a great way to, to shut off the stress of the week or the day. Uh, my husband, Greg, and I travel a lot normally, not in a mm -hmm. pandemic, but finding time to, to go experience another culture, to see a new city, to eat great food. Uh, we both love to cook. Um, so really good food and really good wine or a nice cocktail pairing, also a great escape. <laughs> when you do the novels, I mean, a book a week is a lot. Are you actually getting like hardcover paperbacks or are you, is this all e-readers? How are you doing? Oh, I'm e-reader all the way. I, okay. I my Kindles. I'm surprised the thing hasn't fried by now, but <laughs> it's served me well. What is your favorite sports memory as a kid? Wow. Um, this is totally a flashback, but, and that's, it'll date me as well. Jeez. I can remember going to a Detroit Pistons game with my dad to see the bad boys. I mean, that takes you back to Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars. I mean, that was like, that was special. I mean, that was, that was a time when, of course, Detroit loves their sports, period. But we were a huge Detroit Pistons basketball family. And I remember being in that stadium and it was so exciting. And my dad, we, I played basketball as a girl growing up and he was our coach. And um, that was a really special memory. And that was, I mean, that's, that's a throwback. That's, the, that's just some days ago. <laughs> my final question. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Unfortunately not. I know everybody's shaking their head at me across the industry, but 
a lot of people, it's pretty impressive to see that rack uh, of credentials, but I think just maybe moving offices and jobs one too many times just um, brought it uh, on low priority for me. But I, believe me, I don't need the credentials. It's it's all in the memory banks and it's been quite the experiences over the years and there's nothing you need to to remember those. It's been quite quite some special experiences. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate learning about everything that goes into putting on a golf tournament, but also your path to get to the FedEx St. Jude Invitational. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Pete. Appreciate it. Aaron's advice to get any experience, no matter how small, when looking to break into the sports business really resonates with me. I appreciate her sharing that and all her insights on this episode. I'd also like to thank you for listening. Don't forget, visit credentialsonly.com to see show notes with more about what we discussed. And while you're there, drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. If you like what you've heard, please do us a favor. Leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. We are on social media at Credentials Only on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Credentials Only is a Holter Media production and is edited by Mike Mouchet.